Welcome to UBU Pod. Here you'll meet incredible people who tell us about their rich and interesting lives of being visible, of working through challenges, and of coming out the other side. There's so much power in people's stories, and as a curious person, I love finding out how people tick. I'm your host, Megan Hamilton. I'm a speaking, visibility, and confidence coach, and I help you be you. Welcome to another edition of UBU Pod. Today, I have Mike Ganino. He is a storytelling and public speaking expert who hosts the Mic Drop Moment podcast. He's been named a top 10 public speaking coach by Yahoo Finance and California's best speaking and communication coach by Corporate Vision Magazine. He is an author, former executive producer of TEDx Cambridge. Ooh, I want to talk to you about that too. And has been named a top 30 speaker by Global Guru. He teaches storytelling, presence, and public speaking to some of the biggest names and brands. He's a trained actor and coach from the world famous Second City Improv Olympics and Upright Citizens Brigade. Cool. In addition to his track record as an executive in the hotel, restaurant, retail, and tech industries, Mike's worked with organizations like Disney, American Century Investments, American Marketing Association, and UCLA. Hi, Mike. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I was thinking as you were reading that so generously, I always say to people when someone is reading your bio and you're standing, you know, on the side of the room or something at an event, I always tell my clients, just look at them and be like, wow, I really love you. I really love you. And I was thinking, I really love you as you read that. But then I was also thinking of how ridiculous Corporate Visions magazine is like, who the heck knows this magazine? It's not like Forbes or something. But you know what? When they give you an award, you take it. Of course. And it's not like you're getting like a Mike is really good at editing PowerPoints award. This, you know, this like is completely in your lane as to what you do and what gets you pumped about your job. Indeed. Indeed. Someone did give me, someone did offer me an award for like podcast introduction award. And I was like, this is a very (laughs) niche award. Uh, But then they wanted me to pay them like $3,000 to be listed in their thing. And I was like, no, thanks. You know, okay, so just before we started um, talking today, you noticed guitars and a poster in my background. And so I told you that I'm also a musician. And like one of the things that pisses me off so much is our Canadian Music Awards. You have to pay to submit yourself. Yeah. What the fuck? And it's not like an insignificant amount of money for musicians. Like, it, it it shit like that just makes me really angry but that's the thing that so many people don't know when they look at so many different things like even um you know for a show to, so i live in hollywood i live in los angeles and we are the place where if you come here everyone that comes here is always shocked at the amount of billboards related to tv and movie we have because they're like doesn't every isn't this just the city yeah. of tv and movie why are there <laughs> don't so many we billboards? already understand this <laughs> the billboards are not necessarily for consumers to go see the movie it's for other people in the industry to know the movie exists so they can vote for them. And so the amount of money that gets spent, so all the time during um, award season, you'll see signs that say for your consideration. And it's like shows from a year ago, movies from a year ago. The the studio essentially, uh, the bat, you know, per- whoever is paying to put those up so you remember oh yeah brad pitt in that movie was Mm. good i should vote for him so even that is somewhat and then then you look at things like i used to be in hr world and those ink you know thousand best places to work guess what you got to do to get listed 
pay. So it's not really the thousand. They didn't go out there and survey the most every business. What they did is you can pay to submit a thing to our evaluation team who will then evaluate whether you're a best place to work. So it's all, you know what, everyone, your genius deserves an award even if you can't pay for it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I all yeah, it, it's it's one of those things you're right. It's it's so not known about by anybody who's not in the industry or sort of like even in the peripheral of the industry. And when people find out, you know, it just takes away I don't know, the magic of it or something, or maybe people don't care. I don't know. And maybe that's the only way that you can have these like I don't know, how much does the Oscars cost? Do you know? I don't know. Like to put on a hundred million dollars? Like, is that even? Oh, probably not that much. That's a very expensive production. But think but... about like the the presence that they have, like the whole thing. Even thinking oh, about the so... advertising, the the room, the camera sure. people. Yeah, all the so when you put in all of the economic effects of it, like the dresses, the hairstylists, the limos, the everything. Yeah, that's interesting to think of. What would that be? Someone has to have done that because they. They have to convince the city of Beverly Hills some way that it's going to economically benefit them to host it every year, right? The different shows. I guess. I guess. I don't know. When we get into th numbers like that and just sort of like that level of things, I just can't even, my brain won't even comprehend it. So that's, I know. which is fine. Well, I that's love, also okay, the so gift of like buying a house in Los Angeles, by the way. You look and you're like, wow, a two bedroom, one bath bungalow with a posted side yard for a million two. That's a great deal. I was looking at somebody was like talking about their house in Idaho. So I was like, well, I'm a nosy little beast. So I Googled the address on Zillow to see how much it was. And I was like, oh, $250,000 for a four bedroom house with like an acre. And I was like, I, you can't even buy a studio apartment here for that. So anyway. And I bet you won't be able to actually buy that house for that much in Idaho much longer because real estate across America yeah. and Canada has just gone bananas. Wild, like we right? got in, we got in, I think we got the last house in our neighborhood that was under $300,000 three years ago. And literally within a year, there was nothing less than three and now there's nothing less than four. And it's just, you know, it was a great investment on our part, but where the fuck are people going to live? Like, how are you going to be a young, like, where are you going to go? And apartments are following suit too. Um, right. Toronto did the exact same thing as Los Angeles. And that was, I mean, that's where everything started five years ago. And then the rest of the country followed suit. Wow. But let's talk about, <laughs> let us please talk about Second City. Because my husband did that too. He's a radio host. Oh, fun. Yeah. Oh, fun. Yeah. So where did you do yours? I was in Chicago. And so I was. Oh, you. Oh, wow. It was my early 20s. Um, and I was auditioning. I was I was acting. I was auditioning. I was a flight attendant. So I was auditioning when I wasn't flying in the air. OK, I want to know. You've had like every single job in the world. I, cool I listed jobs. like about 10 of them. And then now you've got you were in HR and a flight attendant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I should have known about HR when I was a flight attendant, but look, that's another, <laughs> that's another story. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So I was, so I was auditioning all the time. And one of the, cause Chicago does a ton, there's not a lot of like movie or film in Chicago, but there was a lot of um, commercials that are shot in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so I was auditioning for commercials and being in commercials. And one of the casting directors said, you really need 
you really need improv on your resume. The trick is, this does link back to the beginning of us talking about money grubbing people. The, the <laughs> reason why they want improv on your resume, wink, wink, is not because you'll be able to handle the set well or whatever. It's because they don't want to pay writers to write content uh, for the commercials. So they'll right. tell you like, well, what would you say here? And then they don't have to pay a writer to write copy <laughs> for these commercials. And so they want improv because they want someone to be able to be like, well, you know, just do something. What would you do in this scene? And then they don't pay a writer. So I did, I fell into improv because the, a couple of casting directors told me I would get booked more often if I did improv. So that's how I started taking classes at Second City. And did you? Did you get booked more? Did I get booked more? Yeah, it definitely helped me um, land. Like I was doing a lot of personal injury lawyer commercials where I played because, you know, like I'm 41 now and, and by the miracle of God and great oil in my skin, I don't look 41. But at 20, I was 20 then. I really look like I looked like a tall child. And so I would play like <laughs> teenage sons who got into a car accident in dad's car and we needed to call the, you know, I was hit from behind. It wasn't my fault. Uh, so I would do a lot of personal injury law stuff. And then I would start to do the, after I got that, the, after I got some improv under me, I started doing more interesting, like national commercials and things like that. So then I was doing like, you know, restaurant brands and, and those kinds of things. So it did open that up for me. Okay, well, that's, that's good. Uh, the commercial auditions that I did for about five years before I was like, I'm done, were beer commercials and um, <laughs> um, like stomach acid issue commercials. That was Those it. Those two. <laughs> yeah, they do. You're right. But I never had any lines. So my story goes, you know, like women never had any lines in commercials back then and still sort of don't. But I'd go in, they'd I'd slate and then they'd do the camera from down to up and they'd yeah. say thank you. And that was it. And I was like, Ugh. oh, my God, why did I go to theater school for this? Anyway, so <laughs> fast forward to I do this um, national commercial audition for Molson Canadian. And I've got lines, like a lot of lines. They came faxed in because, again, that's what was that's what we did back when I was because I'm a little bit older than you. And so I got faxed my lines. It was like three paragraphs of lines. And it was all about how I was going to reward my boyfriend because <laughs> with a threesome because he oh. was so smart and smart enough to choose a beer like Molson Canadian and the director it was me and it was me and like I'm five six and you know like average whatever but like it was me literally in a room full of six two models like that's what that's what they were going for but the director was so excited to have somebody that they could work with with the line so we did it a bunch of times and I thought to myself I'm like really fucking in the running for this and this would be a lot of money I really need and I did not get the job and then I was like I'm done. I am done. If that is the most I'm going to get, and that's when I left uh, the world of commercials and auditions oh, and trying that's... to rearrange my life constantly for that stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing that people all the time, I say this to my clients now who are speakers of like, in the beginning, your job isn't necessarily, yes, your job is to be good on stage. But you also need to just get over the rejection thing. You need to get good at sales, really. And the same thing for actors. Like, your job is not to necessarily be a great actor. Your job is to be a really good 
audition. And not enough people talk about that of like, your job is not to be like, oh, you're brilliant on stage, you're brilliant on camera. Your job in the beginning is one, to be able to do the audition under pressure and two, to be resilient as fuck so it doesn't bother you when you don't get gigs. And I just don't see enough people talking about that. And the same thing with speakers. Yeah. The job is to get good at sales. Yeah, I mean, the resilience piece for every kind of rejection that you might be up against is 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 amazing. And you're absolutely right. I think I think I will say this for myself because that was a really big deal for me because I had I basically called my agent. I'm like, no more. I'm done. I, I, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And she was like, what, what? And I it was such a huge move for me because I really was done and I allowed myself mm -hmm. to be like, no, fuck this. I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. Like it's just, yep. it's dehumanizing and I don't, it's never going to be like, I'm never going to make enough money from this, from this commercials where it's going to be worth it. And I'm going to walk away going, yeah, that was fine. All of that, yeah. like all of that was okay. It was worth it. What? So that and was a good, like it was a good choice for me, but I, to I totally understand what you're saying. And the things you're being asked to do too. I mean, that's the thing of like, the thing you're being asked to do in exchange for that amount of money is like, I wouldn't yeah. allow anyone else to talk to me for this for like 10 times that amount of money. I know, I know. And 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 like, it's so normalized. So yeah, the, the one of the Pepto-Bismol commercials was playing um, like Twister with somebody who just had, you know, like some kind of dinner that wasn't agreeing with them. And I was, I remember having someone's butt in my face just being like, what am I doing? You imagine I'm someday so and you're depressed. like, someday you're winning an, an Oscar and it's like, she started <laughs> off with John's ass exploding in her face during Twister. I do love when it comes up, when they show like before they were famous and they mm -hmm. do have those old... <clears throat> <clears throat> those old commercials they just make me feel they make me feel good yeah um so how did you get how did you get to this place like you know there's you, you've had every single job in the world and now you are you're doing so many cool things well i had a lot of jobs in the world along and you know what they all kind of added up they all kind of kept working so i was doing the flight attendant thing and i was uh training and improv and then I realized I really loved sketch and being able to write my own stuff and that was really the moment when I said wait a second I don't know that I want to be an actor and reading someone else's words I like this idea of like sketch writing one person show because like I get to decide what we're saying to the world and so I really pushed hard on that so I did a ton of improv sketch one person show work um I wrote a, a really horrible one person show um that was about the kids from E.T. after E.T. left. <laughs> so it was called Gertie and it was a one person show Aww. and I played the Drew Barrymore character and the and Elliot. So it was about Gertie and Elliot after Elliot after E.T. left. That was one person. That was my first. It was really not that good. Um, but I really love that. So I just kept doing that. I was, you know, I stayed at Second City. I went to, every, you know, when you're in that world, you go to every theater in town. So I was doing shows all over and and, and working uh, at that point in the restaurant industry because the 9-11 happened. I was no longer a flight mm -hmm. attendant after that. So I was working in the restaurant industry as an actor. Like, what a cliche. Uh, but it ended up being way more successful. Yeah, I did that too. On the re yeah, everyone does that. Um, but I'm type 1 diabetic. So I had to have a job with health benefits because in the U.S. back then – I right. couldn't get insurance. They could tell me no. Right, and right, so right. I couldn't couldn't get insurance. 
And so I had to have like a, a job with benefits. And so that could have stopped me from fully going into acting after I left being a flight attendant, because as a flight attendant, I had a lot of time off and I could work my schedule to like work for two weeks every day and then be off for two weeks and audition and do shows. So I was in the restaurant side and then really the only thing I could do was the improv and sketch in one person show because I could dictate my schedule. I wasn't, right. I wasn't, I wasn't worried about someone else's um, rehearsals or casting or, or anything like that. I could say I'm putting on a show on the third Thursday of November and I got to decide when that was. So I stayed in the restaurant industry, was way more successful there than I was at the initial <laughs> acting, but I always kept my foot on that side of things um, and eventually became a sommelier, became a wine director, a wine educator, then became a director of operations and a partner finally in a restaurant group that we sold. And when we sold that, we moved from Chicago to LA. So my husband had never lived uh, anywhere but Chicago. I grew up out here. So we moved to California and uh, and then from there kind of was like, all right, well, we'll see what happens. And that was in 2014. And I started doing like HR training consulting based on my restaurant work, um, working with brands on like how they could have like an amazing culture and someone I'm really bad at deliverables. And so if I owe you anything, you're never going to get it like. If I'm supposed to email you some, there's a whole list of clients that are listening to this. Like, yeah, that's right. Those are going to be the reviews on this podcast episode. Like he owes me a file. Can you give me Mike's email address, please? Yes. So I'm really bad at that. And so I was like, oh gosh, I'm going to be like a fraud as a consultant. So I thought maybe I could just teach, like, maybe I can convince them, like hire me to come in and do workshops around what I do so that you don't need me all the time. And your team can then run with it and then i'll be available mm -hmm. for like calls and stuff and that worked and uh and then someone from one of those workshops said like oh can you speak at our event um she left to go lead an association and i was like sure and so she sent me an email and it was like here's the honorarium and i thought that the honorarium meant i had to pay them so i was like <laughs> Oh, I think that she thinks I have like a program to sell or something in the back of the room. So she's going to charge me, but like, I don't know. And so I was talking to my husband and I was like, do you think it's worth it? Like, maybe it's good just to do it and get some pictures on stage. So then I Googled honorarium and I was like, she wants to give me money? Like, okay, for an hour? You got it. So that started my speaking career in 2015. And pretty quickly, um, there weren't a lot of like people that were from the restaurant industry who became speakers. And so that was a real niche that I, the, the other option was like Danny Myers from Union Square Hospitality Group, who was famous, wrote a book, ran one of the biggest chains and was like $50,000. Right, right, right. So it was like, well, right. here I am for not $50,000. So it worked out really well <laughs> in the beginning for me. Um, and about, I don't know, a year and a half in, maybe like 2016, the end of the year, one of my previous clients came back and said, hey, we wanna hire you again. I was like, great, yeah. You have high turnover, you know, all your managers leave and stuff. So you've got high turnover. So of course you, you want me to come back and speak to new managers. She's like, no, 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 we don't want you to speak. And I thought, well, you were not the first person who said, we'll pay you to shut up. And so uh, what they wanted was for me to coach their executive team for their speeches, because she said last year when you spoke, everyone remembered what you said. They were talking about it for weeks. They were using your tagline, but the stuff they actually need to know to do their job and to like ex be excited to be here from our exec team disappeared because they weren't that compelling. And so 
I got hired to um, to MC the event and coach all of the exec team, help them write their speeches and deliver them. And then I thought, oh, this feels really good. I was bringing on a lot of the work I had done as a coach in the improv and acting world and teaching storytelling on those stages. And I thought, oh, this is the thing I'm doing. So I kind of like cleared the website off and went full force with teaching people um, this work. I love it. Okay. We're going to take a short break and come back and continue. You want to be authentic. You want to be confident. You want to be engaging. You want to be strong. And you want to be visible. Welcome to Dynamic Presence. Dynamic Presence is a three-month, one-to-one coaching experience that allows you to learn, grow, and embrace the kind of presence you never thought possible. This is personal coaching in six one-hour-long sessions. We work on goal and intention setting, you get shadow work tailored to your specific needs, and I provide you with speaking and visibility training and coaching. I also give you accountability and action management while cheering you on the whole time. Are you ready to improve your speaking and leadership skills and to become more authentic? Head over to ubuskills.com and click the work with me page to learn more about how dynamic presence can change your life. And we are back with Mike and Nino. Okay, so I just said to you on the break that our stories are really similar. I come from classical theater training, uh, worked at a law school, like got into music, um, realized that- What did you that do that... at a law school? <laughs> I organized parties, basically. That's what I did. Because as you know, like all of these, when you get into art stuff, everything is transferable and all of your skills yeah. like build into other stuff. And, and also I'd worked in restaurants for years. So I knew, you know, like wines and- um, cool things and you know what makes a good party what what makes something fall really flat and so I was there um and there's lots of money at the law school and so for 11 years uh basically with lots of different I had lots of different roles in there too I was like the IT support for a while and uh I I, I did a lot of stuff but, but yeah so I put on parties. parties for like the school like yeah, they were like fundraiser yeah. parties for the Lots of, we had lots of visiting speakers. So lots of people who would come to talk to the students uh, and there was always lunch. And then there Mm -hmm. was, um, uh, that was the majority of the events that I helped put on. And near the end, um, they gave me a bigger portfolio. So I was dealing with, uh, we had a, we we hired somebody to come and do an art installation. So I put on that, like, you know, um, yeah, parties. well, and... it's, it's interesting too. One of the things for like performers and actors, especially like theater trained people, like classically trained, where you've seen all sides of the theater and had to work all the different roles in in the program, you really get great at creating an experience for people. And it's not yeah. just about the performance; it's about how do we create a full immersive experience, which is like you said, so transferable to law school. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, especially law school's parties. Um, I just like it when I get to put on a show or a, a show or a party and there's actual money because I did for years work in, uh, I was producing theater and I was writing and putting on my own shows. I also have a a great one woman show that um, that nobody has seen since I put it on and never will 
It sounds like you're Gertie. Uh, and actually, it's called, oh, what's it called? Bessie's Mother. So similar old, <laughs> old lady names. Anyway, um, and that's, that's I think, what's really cool is that, you know, you have all, all of these skills that you build as an artist because you have to do all of the different things. And then you, you really do understand, like, project management. Yeah. Right. That's essentially yeah. what it ends up being. But I was working at the law school and I the the students were putting on these um, they were participating in these moot courtroom uh, competitions, which mm. is where you basically pretend to be a lawyer. Yeah. And there's a lot of money in this. Like they were sending these kids to uh, like far off lands to do these competitions, like lots and lots of money. And I said, OK, well, who is coaching their performances? nothing nobody and yeah. i thought oh i'd really like to try that i'd like to finally use some of these skills that i built and developed over the last however many years being on stage uh and so that's where it started for me and then i've been doing this full time just over a year but i've been doing it for about seven years and working with uh working with people for about the last three or four that were not part of the law school anyway so here we are and you you're coaching some really cool people. Like, how do you, I like this. Do you ever have the experience where you're coaching somebody where you're a little bit awestruck and you're just like, oh, I just have to stay cool here? I haven't yet had really? that. And I've worked with some really You must big be more people. grounded than me. You know what it is? It's because I really believe that no one is so bad that they can't, uh, that they can't be good and no one is so good that they can't be great no no i mean that you're starstruck by somebody yeah no. and you're like oh how am i going to coach them no because i'm like you know what i see what you're hiding over there let's pull that <laughs> yeah, out i know i know because <laughs> <laughs> that's typically what it becomes when someone is like whoa like i'm a big name author or i'm a i'm a celebrity the the issue when they're saying their own words it's so different. Like, like I've worked with actors who are going to give a speech or, or musicians who are going to give a speech for a fundraiser or something. And it's so different when they're not being the character of the song and it's them speaking words that they haven't, you know, performed and written into to a music and they have that support there. So almost always, regardless of the level of the celebrity, there is something they're doing that's protective. And that's what I hone right. in on of like, how do I help them with that thing? Um, so for me, that's the way that I've been able to be like, okay. Now, I think like if I were to think like who would call me that I would be like, oh, this is going to be hard. Okay, so there's a woman named Jennifer Nettles. She's a country music singer. She's kind of, it's like pop country. She was in a band called Sugarland. She's now, she's, she, was in, uh, she was in Chicago on Broadway. She's now in Waitress on Broadway. If she called me to help her with the speech, I would probably, I would probably be a little nervous because I'm very, I like wrote a book about company culture and I thanked her in the acknowledgements. So Aww. I would probably be, <laughs> she would be someone that I'd be like, oh, I'm feeling a little something for. But right. I've seen her give a speech and I know I could help her. Yeah, that, yeah, I, I have, I have, I keep a list of, um, of people who, where I watch them speak, where you would think that when you're at that, you know, level of, I don't know, like, people know who you are and you're just like oh yeah ooh 
Interesting. Okay, well let's let's uh let's talk about stage presence because that's that's leading into that. And where do you think stage presence comes from? <laughs> so I think there's this like myth that stage presence is about charisma, is about all the time I hear from people that you know they don't have stage presence because they're not extroverts. Um mm -hmm. and and I look back to my experience as the as the exec producer from TEDx Cambridge and I say, let me show you some extrovert or some introverts because we were working at TEDx Cambridge. <laughs> we were working with the brainiest of the brainiest of the brainiest mm -hmm. of like yep. MIT, Yale, Harvard, like and not the theater departments from those schools, the like behavioral economics departments and deep <laughs> neuro research. And where I think stage presence comes from is three places. I think it comes from your breath. I think it comes from your voice, not your words, but your voice. And I think it comes from your movement and how open you are on stage and how willing you are to be seen and how willing you are to reveal yourself. And so even if you go back to, um, to Brene Brown's first TEDx talk, right? If you go back yep. to Simon Sinek's first TEDx talk, neither one of them were like classically brilliant. What was, and neither one of them would you say like, that's an extrovert performing mm -hmm. with charisma and dynamicism. <laughs> yep. It's someone who was connected to their breathing, was connected to their voice and was, and was moving in a way that wasn't protective. And that I think is what an audience, whether you are big energy, whether you are silent energy, that is what an audience I think can't take their eyes away from is, Ooh, I'm seeing some real shit right now happen up there. Yeah, I love it. And I love that you say that because I get it all the time too, where people are like, I just, I don't want to be, you know, Marie Forleo. I don't want to be um, like, I don't want to be Oprah. And I'm like, and that's fine because you're not going to be Oprah. But what we really want to do <laughs> is help you. <laughs> I know. I mean, who wouldn't want to be Oprah really? But there can only be one. What we want to do is help you feel comfortable as yourself. Right. Yeah. That is when people come to me and they're like, I need my voice to sound lower. And I'm like, for who? Because mm -hmm. nobody actually gives a shit about that. They just want to know that you're into what you're saying, that you're connected to what you're saying and that you're excited about what you're saying. Because there's nothing worse than watching somebody who like doesn't give a shit about what they're talking about and just yeah. monotonously goes on and on about something that could be really, really cool. Like we yeah. can't connect to that. Yeah. Well, and I think too, the, the challenge sometimes is that, you know, people hear that advice of like, just be you. And it's like, but there's a lot of versions of me because like, the, like I have an issue with mm -hmm. this whole, like people talking about, you know, like be your authentic self. And it's like, but what is my authentic self? Because like, if I'm having like a gastrointestinal issue on stage, <laughs> the audience doesn't want me to be my authentic self. Like, I think it's a little bit. <laughs> what what they want to do is they want to see someone there who is helpful, who is um, not being protective or hiding something. But like if you had a bad sexual experience last night, like we don't necessarily want to hear that in the morning at our HR conference. Um, what we want is in the container of that message, in the promise that you've made us, we want you to truthfully tell us how you feel about what you're saying. Not necessarily mm -hmm. your true self in that moment on stage where you're, you know, thinking about something else, 
but how do you truthfully feel in this message, I think is what we want. And I think a lot of people get confused because they think, well, just be me, but me is tired or angry or having a bad day or, you know, whatever. And it's like, right, but that's not completely it. It's how do you feel about these words you're saying, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it, yeah. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's interesting too. you as a songwriter. One of the things I say, all the people you said this about marking up speeches is I think songwriters have such a gift when it comes to public speaking if they can write their speeches in the same way they would write lyrics, meaning there is no punctuation, it's written in thoughts and delivery. So like, if you look at a set of lyrics, they're not long paragraphs, they're verses, choruses, they're short sentences that are like, okay, we're getting through this idea. And then we're getting through this idea on the next line. And it actually is such a beautiful way to think of marking up a speech because that's how you communicate. Let me get through this idea. Now let me get through this idea. And I think that that's the truth people want on stage is how do you feel about this thought or idea you're sharing? Does that make sense ranting over here? It, it totally <laughs> makes sense. But I also think and I also think that's like that is authentically you because when you come up on stage, yeah. you're not just coming in like uh, like what happened last night with that terrible sexual experience you had you're bringing like your, the entire you right and so it's i love what you said about like not hiding something so mm -hmm. i incorporate something and we probably ha have the same thing in different words i have my clients now do something called shadow work where i have mm. you like take a look at what actually are you afraid of and let's take a look at this let's let's peel back where it comes from most people have you know some kind of kindergarten teacher or parent or caregiver at some point saying like, speak up, you're so quiet or, um, you know, like stop talking, talk too much, whatever. One of these things that gets gives us hangups through our lives. And so going back to that and then, yeah, I, like I love that you said that about, you know, when somebody's hiding something and usually they're trying to hide whatever they are ashamed of about themselves. Yeah, they don't want you to find out and they're going to do they're going to put on whatever fucking mask they think they need to wear. Like to get out there and be uh, dynamic or, you know, as you say, have stage presence. Yeah, and that's just it just never works. We yeah. sniff that out in a second. We're like, we may not actually be able to sort of articulate like, oh, he's clearly hiding a shameful experience here. But we would go. Oh, something feels weird. And I, now I feel uncomfortable. And now I can't actually listen to this person because whatever's going on up there is just, it's a little bit too much for me. Yeah. And we don't How even. Do you, do you resonate with that? Oh, yeah. And we don't even recognize we're doing that when we're watching someone. We just think, mm -hmm. we just think like, yeah, oh, we I don't can't articulate it. Or, it. Oh, I think there's something mm -hmm. else truthful here. It's interesting you talk Are about they... shadow work. It's so youngian of you, by the way. Um, <laughs> I know. I it's, have. It's. My Mr. Young is right up there. There, see, look at us. We are twins. Um, Doctor Young, I guess. Yeah, the the thing I think is really interesting is like this trade off of of I say this all the time of like very early on we trade our authenticity for attachment, right? Because we need attachment. We come out of the womb, we're little babies. We need attachment. We need safety. We need security. It's not sometimes we hear attachment and we think a negative, like I'm um I'm um 
what is it called codependent but Needy. no it's it's we we need attachment because we need a parent mm -hmm. to care for us we need all those things and we start very young like when i say authenticity what i mean is like authority of self like if you look at the word like authority of self like i own my breathing if my voice is too high is there an actual physiological reason because like this is so wild i read a study and it was talking about how um like women, women's voices and men's voices after puberty are actually physically not that different. And how much of a boy's drive for a deeper voice is actually sociological and cultural. And that like the deepening of the man's voice is not entirely physiological. It's a little bit because the, the vocal cords get thicker, but the the lowering of a girl's voice or the hiring the hiring heightening heightening of a of a woman's voice or a teenage girl's voice and the lowering of a boy's is largely sociological 100 percent. i i was just asked to write an article about the fact that they just did like blind studies and male ceos who have deeper voices get paid more money yeah like just because we associate that societally yeah. with somebody who has authority yeah. It's, Margaret Thatcher so, famously got a voice coach to lower her voice, right? Right, right. And it's and it's it's it's, it's even wild, too. I hear all the time about like, um, you know, vocal fry or up speak. And actually men, when they look at recordings, men do it more than women. We just expect it from men. And when women do it, we notice it. So it's like actually this whole thing that we blame the Kardashians for. One, it started in New Zealand, the up speak thing, um, not with the Kardashians in the valley or the valley girls. That's just like patri uh, patriarchy, like <laughs> doing that. But the other interesting thing with the voice is so like when they look at, so physiologically, like we're not really different culture in different places, but Japanese women speak in like a um, very high voice, higher than most women ever hit in like a normal week. And Japanese men speak in a lower voice that very few men ever hit. It's pure, it's cultural because that's what's expected. And so we show up and we say like, well, my voice is too high, my voice is too low. And it's like, it, it actually might be because you've traded your authenticity, which is the authority of yourself, of your ideas, of your feelings for attachment. And that's natural and normal because as children, we want, you know, we're like, ooh, we, I want some juice. And we cry and we yell for juice. And we get told when you ask like a nice little boy. So we learn to like dim our expressiveness to fit in culturally. And some of that we need. We can't run around screaming for juice all the time. Otherwise, you end <laughs> up like an American politician. You, you can't just <laughs> scream for what you want all of the time. But at a young age, we associate changing how we express ourselves, how we use our voice, the tone we speak in, the way we use our face to share a message in order to get attachment. And if we don't question that, we end up, like you said so beautifully, with all of this shadow work that we don't even realize is affecting the way we show up to a board meeting or a TEDx stage. Um. <clears throat> yeah, that's incredible. I love that. I've never put that together with I mean, I I mean, I I, I always blame the patriarchy for everything, obviously, because it is actually the biggest <laughs> problem. However, um I love that you put it even, you know, in a way that we can really uh, because we hear the word patriarchy and we're just like, Bleh. but you can really attach to it by saying <laughs> attachment or just, you know, belonging. Yeah, that is really great. I'm going to steal that. Sorry, I will attribute it to you, and I won't. Um, 
I won't write about it anywhere, but when I'm talking to people, I'm going to say, guess what? Guess what I learned? Um, Okay, we've been... That whole study on the voice thing of like, okay, so Japanese men and women looking across it, um, I think it's Dutch. I think it's Dutch men and women. The range between the voices is super low because women in that society are generally seen as equal and they don't need to be like Mm -hmm. cute little dolls and men don't need to be very rough. And so like... Um, the thing that happens in Japan happens all over the world. I mean, we do that in the US, we do it in Canada. But what was interesting, I was reading this research and it was saying that like um, Dutch voice production is actually like very, very similar between men and women. And when you look at societally, sociologically, how they're treated in that culture, it's a much more balanced relationship between the genders. And I just think that's so mind blowing that this thing that we accept is not actually yeah. true. I love it. I love it. And over time will cause vocal damage. <laughs> like you, right. if you just naturally are, you know, if you are um, speaking in some kind of affected voice for 25 years uh, or more, uh, you're going to notice uh, issues over time. Um, okay. I am aware of of how much we've gone over and I just I want to because we talked about this and I want to go there for a minute because I think this is really important. Let's talk about Dave Chappelle. It's still like it's like the biggest left turn all of a sudden out of nowhere. But yeah. you and I had talked uh sort of like very briefly on Instagram. You talked about the 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 new uh Chappelle special and I wrote to you and I was like, "Hey, are you comfortable talking about this?" and you're like, "Yeah, let's do it." Because you know, um, there it is. What's it called? The closer? Yeah. And thank God for that. See you later, Dave Chappelle. What the hell? It's such a challenge because I also fully recognize, and and I I feel like we both do. I haven't known you long enough, but I fully realize that we are two white people critiquing the art of a black man. I get that. And a black man who largely says really, really, um, accurate and intelligent and provoking things about race. Mm -hmm. So I had to deal with that when I, because I like said something, I think the day after the special came out, I was like, what is going on here? Because I had a bunch of friends who were like, hey, um, I don't like this thing he said, but like, you know, he did say all these good things. So let's like celebrate that. And I said, well, are there other people who are saying really good things that we can celebrate? Because like this thing is really bad. And so I've thought a lot about like, am I you know, like as a, as a white man, cause intersectionality is such a thing, right? Yep. Um, a white gay man, where do I fall? And then, you know, I had people come at me and say, well, he was talking about you as like a white liberal attacking him. And it's like, well, he said that he basically equated that only white people are gay, which is challenging. Yeah. Right. Yep. And really damaging to a whole bunch of families and kids and young people. Um, yeah, it's really, I don't know. It was really, I think that of course art is art, but I think there's a difference between art that you make and you put on display and art that you are paid a lot of money and given a huge platform for that could hurt people. Cause it's one thing if it's like, Hey, you want to put on your own show over here down the street in the park? Like good for you. Say what you want to say over there. It's another thing Uh to say a huge company gave you a lot of money Mm -hmm. to say that an entire group of people don't exist and aren't real. 
which is what happened. Well, right. And it's not even, okay. And yes, yes, I am a white woman. There's a whole, uh, there's a lot of really accurate comedy specials about me. But (laughs) I, I really appreciate Dave Chappelle's take on, on race. And I think, and like, it's so smart and it's so nuanced and it's so, you know, at the uh, many times groundbreaking. And so it's so fucking incredibly disappointing when you have this other group of people that he is very much targeting. Because if you even listen to the how he does, <laughs> fucking asshole, he's when he talks about the LGBTQ community, right? He's purposefully making a show of how he's trying to remember the lgb like if you go back and watch him like he's making a big deal of saying the letters right yeah even like um he even calls it the letters in a in a previous special because i've seen all of his specials on netflix yeah and this is not the first time that somebody has said to him hey like by the way how you're talking about trans people is pretty crappy and like, yeah. do you, here's what, here's what I think when I watch it, I think he's uncomfortable and I don't think he knows how to admit that to himself because he's seen as this person who's like so edgy and so like has something to say about everything. I think that the idea of trans people makes him uncomfortable and like, I don't know. I really don't know, but this is what I get from watching his behavior when he talks about this. Mm-hmm. And he's so sensitive about it mm-hmm. that instead of like leaning in and learning, which is where you, you know, when when something is bothers you so much, that's when you really need to take a look and go, okay, wait a minute. Why is this bothering me so much? But instead yeah. of doing that, which you sort of expect from him, he like goes full out the opposite and then like f- tries to force feed you that what he's doing is is. It's fucking like I don't know, groundbreaking or actual. Um, and then you know the whole thing about him talking about his friend. Yeah, I mean that felt definitely like a. Well, I've got a gay friend, so I can say this, and it's like, but even if your friend excuses you, I don't. Like, yeah, this is this is like, and a bunch of other trans people don't. Right. When Ellen came out defending George Bush and it's like, I don't care that you're some other rich Emmy award winning person who's defending another rich person. Like you don't get to say, oh, I've excused him. So everyone should. You don't get that. You don't get that power. I'm sorry. I'm happy that you did. And good for you. I know. I know. I know. But here's. okay. And now I'm going to play devil's advocate, which I don't like to, but I, and I do actually believe this. There's part of me that's like, but Ellen fucking made it okay for people to be gay on television. Yeah. Right. When she did that, that was like, that was, people today wouldn't understand how monumentally huge that was at the time. Yeah. And, and she suffered from it. And the people who, who were on that episode not Oprah, obviously, but everybody else, right? <laughs> Didn't get to work for for several yeah. years. Yeah, and 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 I, you know, it's hard because you're like, what the fuck are you doing? 
hanging out with George Bush, Ellen. Right. And and so, like, does that erase what she did? Does Dave Chappelle's I, shitty treatment erase like all of the sort of like really interesting critical race theory stuff that he has brought up? I don't think that it erases it at all. I think that it says, is this the only source from which we can get this thing? Because like if there was if we were all parched, right, and there were three sources of like eternal water that we could go get and one of them was like helpful, nice place to go. And you could go there and you could have the water and nobody damaged you. And the other one was a place where if you go there, you have to get hit and beaten on the way to the water. Which one would you choose? Now, if there right. was only one source of water and it was the one where you have to get hit and beaten on the way, then I guess you're going to go get the water. But if there's a source that doesn't have to hurt you to get it, then why wouldn't we go there? And that's what I was saying in the post that, that you commented on was like, first of all, let's look at the facts around how bad it can be to be in that community that he was attacking. Let's look at the violent crime rates. Let's look at the nonviolent crime rates. Let's look at the suicide rates. Let's look at all of that and think about whether there's an issue here societally. Secondarily, are there other people who are producing great work around race and and thinking on that that are not also damaging an entire group of people? If there's not, then I guess we need to figure out a way to listen to him. But if there are, why wouldn't we go get the water that doesn't force us to hurt ourselves? That was my whole point on that thing. And there's like, there's a great book called um, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And she wrote about how in the US specifically, it's not even really, her theory is that, or her, the case she makes in the book is that the US is actually a caste system in disguise. Meaning it's not just, so, so at the top of the caste is, you know, rich, white, pedigreed dude. Right. Right. So is it better to be a rich, white, pedigreed dude? Of course. Okay. So then what's the second one? Is it a rich, white, pedigreed woman? And then, I don't know. And then you keep going down. Because the, the case that she was talking about in the book is people all the time want to throw Oprah and Obama at you. Is like, well, see, can't be true because yeah. look. Everything's look okay. <laughs> and it's the all idea right. of, and this is the same thing where, and, and probably I would imagine at the bottom of that cast is I think it's probably very hard to be a black trans woman in this country. I don't see a lot of them working at Starbucks. I, I, I just imagine from what I've heard from friends, what I've read, what I've listened to, that that's a very uh, hard place to be in this country, maybe this world. And so it isn't that all gay people are bundled into one and my experience is the same as someone else in the LGBTQ world because, okay, wait, I'm white. And I'm a male. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that gets me further up the caste system, but I'm still gay. So I'm knocked down the caste system. Well, I grew up um, with uh, poor with a teenage mom. So that knocks me down. And so somewhere on that range are also Ellen and Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, they have those things. Yes, she is a lesbian. Yes, he is a black man in America, but they're also very wealthy and they have a lot of power. And so where in that caste system do they fall? Um, is Dave Chappelle at the top with a white rich man? Uh, no, because he still is a black man who's targeted for, for being black in so many places. Is Ellen at the top with a rich white woman? Um, she's probably closer than, than other people are, uh, but, but she's still a lesbian in America. So that idea to me is really interesting of like, both can be true that you are of this 
that's what intersectionality is, right? Is like you are in this group that is um, uh, disenfranchised. Maybe that's not the right word. Um, There's marginalization within your with, within yeah, your identity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing that that I look at with Ellen and that I look at with with Dave in this case is like power and money really, really change, I think, a lot of things. And I think that was the case for Ellen when it's like, oh, I was at the George Bush thing. She later um, said we shouldn't be mad at Kevin Hart when he said he would like beat his son if he came home gay. He said that, um, that we shouldn't yeah. be mad about that. And she forgave him. And it's like, I don't know that you get to forgive him because you got a bunch of rich friends you hang out with and that's for you to do. Like, good for you. I don't have to as a little gay kid who was worried I was going to get beaten in the closet too. So like, it's really, really complicated and it's really, really a minefield um, of discussion right now, you know? And I'm sure there's somebody listening to this who's like, you two should shut up on this, you know? And, and, and perhaps... And perhaps they're right. Although I do, I think that, you know, discussions really like uh, having discussions is really important as is reading from the source, right? Yeah. Reading from the people who have lived that experience who, yeah. who, um, who want to talk about it. So listen, I really appreciate and I appreciate that conversation. Uh, and, and yeah, we weren't going to solve it today, but I think that um, <laughs> we there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next time uh maybe you can come on for part two and and we'll like figure this shit out we'll figure out um, race and race and lgbtq yeah, issues in one hour two fucking white people to figuring it yep. out we're done it's okay everybody we have solved the problem um but i i really appreciate you coming on here i've been looking forward to talking to you and i just i want to leave with one last question what would you do if you got a call from dave Chappelle? And he wanted you <laughs> to coach him. I think it would depend. And this is the same case for all of my clients. Um, Cause I've had politicians reach out. I've had people uh, that wanted to, I've had authors who wrote books for me. It's really, I have to look at the message and say, what is it that you want to do in the world with this message? And to me, that would be what mattered. So if he wanted me to coach him on like, shit, I really messed up. I really want to talk about this. Absolutely. If he wanted me to coach him on how to go back on Twitter and or whatever he whatever show he was at and say, I refuse to answer to the demands of anyone. No, not interested. There's someone else for you for that. I love it. You, you turned say? my jokey question into something uh, entirely serious and and poignant. Um, what would I say? What would I, I think I would just say like, why me? I usually coach, you know, uh, women and non-binary people, like, you know, um, uh, but yeah, I think same thing. If he, if he wanted to apologize and he was just looking for like how to be truthful, I'd be like, okay, Dave, before I work with you on this, we're going to do some shadow work together. Cause I think you got a lot, a lot of shit you need to air out. Mm. That's what I would say. Mm. And I think he'd be like, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he'd be into it. He's a smart guy. Like, I think he's going to, I fuck, I hope he's going to figure it out. I just, I'm sitting in my and disappointment. The sad thing you know? is in our like commercial world, maybe he did figure it out. Maybe this whole thing is him oh, having it figured out. And then out. he just did the closer because he went to, oh, that sucks. No, no, I can't. I can't believe in a world like that. I can't. <laughs> 
I got to just think he's shitty and not like purposefully <laughs> shitty. <laughs> Accidental. Thank you Acc so. That's a good book. Accidentally <laughs> shitty. <laughs> um, on that, listen, this has been so fun talking to you. Thanks so much, Mike. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Well, I don't know about you, but that was one of the funnest conversations I've had on this podcast. And it is entirely because, I mean, I love every one of my guests. I curate the show. That's why I have people on. But it was so fun to totally nerd out on stuff that I'm really into. So I hope you enjoyed it and got something out of it as well. If you did, please leave us a comment and let us know. And by us, I mean me. I'm Megan Hamilton. I'm your host, I'm the writer, I'm the producer, I'm the editor, and all of the music is mine. Thank you so much for joining us week after week. And if you like what you hear, it helps so much if you share with other folks. Have a wonderful week.